Church, what a blessing it is for me to bring you the Word of God again this morning. And today we are going into part two of our message titled, Winning the Battle Against Temptation, which as you know is part of our series, Preaching the Kingdom, where we've been focusing on the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus retreats on a hillside to speak to his followers, to his disciples. Last week was a drilling down deep into our hearts where we identified how Jesus wants us to move away from our external attempts at dealing with temptation and sin and how he wants us to focus on the internal work of the heart. Because after making a decision to sin, but you still want to do it, your problem still exists, the root is still there. If the motive behind the decision wasn't right and the heart hasn't changed, you've missed the point, you're still in sin anyway, and you haven't found your breakthrough. And the reason why Jesus wants us to get to the heart of the matter is because he wants us whole and walking in victory as we find breakthrough in different areas in our lives. He doesn't want us to be Christians that are walking in partial victory or even in in seasonal victory. He wants us to be living lives that grow in experience and maturity as we learn to defeat the attempts of the enemy at defiling what God has done in us, right, and called us to. And why is this important? Because Jesus knows that wholeness in here is what paves the way for destiny. Can I say that again? Wholeness in here is what paves the way for destiny. You see, Satan knows that God is always up to something good in those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. He knows that destiny is birthed in them. So his plan is to introduce temptation, to take them off the pathway of destiny. And where God wants to bring wholeness, the enemy wants to bring and keep us in brokenness. And look, it's not like I'm sharing some new revelation with you here this morning because that has been the devil's modus operandi from day one. Since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, he has been looking to destroy the destiny placed in man and in woman by God himself. And right throughout the Bible, men and women have either overcome the plans of the enemy or have been overcome by them. And that's why Jesus focuses in on such an important issue in our lives and is why we continue on this subject again today. Last week we looked at the first strategy in winning the battle against temptation, which is to to stop it before it starts. And today as we look at the second strategy, I not only want to give you tools on how to stop it once it has already started, but I specifically want to focus on the why. I want to zero in on how this all impacts our destiny. And church, there are two portions of Scripture that I'm going to be making reference to this morning. Matthew chapter 5 from verses 29 to 30. And we'll be spending quite a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 to 13. So put a marker in both those chapters in your Bible. Church, it has been said by some of the great theologians and pastors of old, that it is impossible for you and I to reach the destiny that God has for us 
if we are not able to learn how to overcome temptation. Because sin will always take you further than you want to go. It will always keep you longer than you want to stay and impact you greater than any way that you thought that sin would ever impact you. And Jesus, being the creator of our destiny, feels so strongly about this that he he says this in Matthew chapter 5. Right after he speaks about committing the act of adultery in the heart, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And what is Jesus doing here? He's speaking to our destiny, especially our eternal destiny. And when Jesus says that you should rather cut off your hand or pluck out your right eye, he isn't speaking literally. Because if the problem is in your heart, then what good is it to pluck out your eye or to cut off your hand? If the right eye were gone, you could still look lustfully at someone else with the left eye. Right? If the right hand were gone, you could still carry out sinful acts with the left one. And you see, in the Jewish culture, the right hand and eye represented a person's best and most precious faculties and capabilities. The right eye represented one's best vision, and the right hand represented one's best skills. So Jesus' point here is that you should be willing to give up whatever is necessary, even your best, to keep you from falling into sin, because it will ultimately impact your destiny. Now, the Apostle Paul knew how temptation would severely impact the, the destiny of believers, And so in 1 Corinthians, he he writes this letter to the church in Corinth. And in this passage of Scripture, Paul is talking to the church about overcoming temptation, which speaks to what we're speaking about today. And in order to talk to them about it, he reaches into the past to pull out the story of the children of Israel as they are wandering in the wilderness. And let me read what he says from verse 1. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, believers, right? He's speaking to believers, that our fathers were all under the cloud in which God's presence went before them. And they all passed miraculously and safely through the Red Sea, and all of them were baptized into Moses, into his safekeeping as their leader in the cloud and in the sea. And all of them ate the same spiritual food, And all of them drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. And I want to stop right there for right now, because Paul starts off in a profound way in this chapter. Because he says, in essence, all of the people of Egypt who left Egypt were under the same covering. But what does he mean by that? This is an important point because even though God led all of them out of captivity, they were all under the same cloud and all passed through the same sea. All were baptized into Moses. All had the same spiritual food and, and spiritual drink. 
meaning they were taught, they were all taught the same truths. It says in verse 5, Nevertheless, God was not well pleased with most of them, for they were scattered along the ground in the wilderness. Why? Because their lack of self-control led to disobedience, which led to death. That's an amazing statement right there, church, because when you think about it, right, all of them would have seen the mighty hand of God lead them out of slavery, out of Egypt, through the Red Sea on dry land, and they were headed to the promised land, but somehow they got caught up wandering in the wilderness. What should have taken them, what, seven days took them 40 years? Why? Because God was not well pleased with most of them. Right? In fact, as we know, there's only two of the adults that actually made it through. Who was it? Joshua and Caleb. That's right. It says that they, they were scattered along the ground in the wilderness. And you know what that means, right? God had to cause them to die because he was not going to allow them to cross over into the promised land with the mentality and the sin that they had in their hearts. And church, you and I will need to understand that principle in our life. Because we cannot get into the promised land, so to speak, of what God has promised for us in this life while we carrying the mentality and the sins that Jesus has already delivered us from. The children of Israel were delivered from their life of slavery. They were all under the same cloud during the day, the same pillar of fire at night. They were all taught the same truth by Moses, but God was not well pleased with them. And let's find out why as we continue with this in verse 6. It says, Now these things, the warnings and admonitions, occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And what Paul is doing here is seeking to teach them a lesson through the example of the children of Israel. And among other things, they had five sins that they could not overcome. And we're going to look at these five sins today as we build on our strategy in winning the battle against temptation. Because church, these five sins are not only the five sins that the children at Corinth were having problems with, they are the same five sins that you and I have problems with today. Let me explain. Here's the first one in verse 6. I'll read it again. Now these things, the warning and admonitions, occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So the first issue that Paul makes reference to is setting our hearts on evil, evil things, which means that they had lust in their hearts. The words in this passage, setting our hearts, three words in the English. It's one word in the Greek, and it's a Greek word, epithemetes. And it means one who greatly desires or one who really craves something. Or one who sets his or her heart upon evil. And it means to want something so bad that you'll do just about anything to get it. And here's the problem with the children of Israel in this example that Paul is giving us. When they left Egypt, God freed them out of Egypt. They are traveling around and trying to get to the promised land that they get stuck in the wilderness. And yet God fed them, fed them supernaturally. 
Right? And when they would wake up in the morning, they'd stretch their hands outside the tent, there, there would be food there. And what was the name of that food? Manna. Right? They had never seen manna before. As a matter of fact, they named the food manna, which means, what is this? And that's how they were fed supernaturally from God. There was no checker 6060. There was no quick spa. There was no Mr. Delivery. All they had to eat was what God supernaturally provided for them day after day. But guess what? It was exactly what they needed for that day. But you know what? If you go and study Numbers chapter 11, you'll find out that they got tired of the manna from God. You see, they had the cravings for the fish and the cucumbers and, and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. They wanted all the food that they had when they were in Egypt in in slavery. So, in other words, because of these cravings, these desires for, the, for these things, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to slavery. They wanted to go back to the very thing that God had delivered them from. And church, the point that Paul is pointing out here is that some believers are lusting after the things that God has brought them up out of. Are you with me this morning? You see, they are still longing for the parting and the drinking and the drugs and the loose life, lifestyle that God now asks them to turn from. And the point here is, church, you should not lust after your past because it will stop you from stepping into your future. It will keep you from stepping into your destiny. There are too many Christians who are missing what they used to do, but at the same time, they are complaining that God is not bringing wholeness to their brokenness or bringing them closer to their destiny. They say, God, you know what? I'm not really experiencing this, this life of miracles or this, this prosperous life that so many preachers are, are speaking about today. And God, if you don't show me this promised land right now, this, this life of milk and honey that everyone told me about, I might just head back to what I know and live off the scraps of what I, I used to live off. Even though you've delivered me from death to love, even though you've delivered me from slavery to bondage, because of these cravings, I might want to go back. And again, church, this is such a clear indication that Jesus wants us to deal with the internal matters of the heart. Because, you know, Many of us, when we come to Christ, we may just be wanting to prosper externally. But what does the Word of God say? In 3 John chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So what does that mean? What comes first? Your soul needs to prosper. And your soul, it's your inner self, it's your mind, your will, and your emotions, it's your character, it is your heart. And Jesus knows that wholeness in here brings all kinds of wholeness out there. And this is an important principle for us to understand, church, when we are looking to win the battle against temptation, wholeness in here brings wholeness out there. Because you know what, too often in life we want to put the, the cart before the horse, right? But what does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added. 
So lusting and setting our hearts on evil things is the first thing that we constantly need to be guarding ourselves against. And here's the second one in verse 7. It says, do not be worshippers of handmade gods. That's idols. As some of them were, just as it is written in Scripture, the people sat down to eat and drink after sacrificing to the golden calf at Horeb and stood up to play, indulging in immoral activities. Now, if you go to Exodus chapter 32, you will see the example that Paul is making reference to here. Because when Moses was receiving the law on the mountain, right, up on the mountain with God, do you know what the children of Israel did? They gathered all the, the gold, and they, they mounted the gold, and they formed this, this golden calf. And they worshipped this calf, they, they bowed down to this calf, and they ran around this calf, right? And what Paul is saying, he's using this example, and he's saying to the church of Corinth, I do not want you to become idol worshippers. And you may say, Pastor, you know what? I don't worship a little statue. I don't have this little golden calf or this little golden Buddha next to my bed that I, I worship or I run around at night before I go to bed. But let me tell you what an idol is. An idol is something that controls your money. An idol is something that controls your schedule. An idol is something that controls what you will and you won't commit to. And look, we might not dance around little statues or, or bow down to them, but let me tell you what, you what we do with our idols. And, and humor me this morning. Tell me if, this, if the, this relates to you in any way. This is what we do with our idols. We, we drive our idols. We, we wash our idols. We overparent our idols. We listen to our idols. We watch our idols on TV. We even go to our idols' concerts, or should I say worship services. And look, I'm not saying that you can't enjoy any of these things in life, church. Don't get me wrong. But you see, it's a problem if you know every single word of the second last song of your favorite musician's album, released back in 2008, but you don't know one verse in the, in the book of Hezekiah in the Bible. And you don't even know that there is no book of Hezekiah in the Bible. <laughs> we have idols today just like they had back then. And one of the biggest issues that Paul is making reference to here is the issue of idolizing yourself. He says, just as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, indulging in immoral activities. And church, what this speaks to is the idol of self-gratification where it's really just all about satisfying myself and what I need. It's about my needs. I will look to myself first, and then, then I might worry about someone else, right? But you know, at some point, church, in our Christian walk, God needs to make you and I understand that life is not just about us. It's not just about what satisfies our own desires. And yet, in this example we've been looking at, that's all they did. They ate and they drank and they rose up to play. And it kind of resembles the world that we, we're living in right now, isn't it? There was no time to serve others if you are doing these things all for yourself. 
And what Paul was emphasizing by using this example is that we need to guard ourselves against the idol of self-gratification, indulging in immoral activities and worshiping material gods. Because let me tell you something, worshiping created things other than worshiping the creator himself never leads to wholeness, it only leads to emptiness. And it will push you off the pathway that leads to your destiny. And we're speaking to destiny this morning. It's very quiet here this morning. Are you guys okay? Here's number three. Verse eight says, We must not indulge in nor tolerate sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 suddenly fell dead in a single day. And church, let me say this. Sexual immorality is probably the biggest hindrance to you and I fulfilling our destiny. And isn't it a coincidence that this is exactly what the world we're living in right now has become so numb to? Because, you know, in our culture, through the past couple of decades, it's been introduced slowly through music and through television. These characters that have been introduced and, and things that have been said and in our culture today, we've become so numb to, to sexual immorality. As a matter of fact, it's expected that after you've been dating somebody for three or four weeks or even less, that something is supposed to go down. It was a problem back then and it's a problem still today. Sexual immorality is a sin. You and I need to understand that sex outside of marriage is, is a sin. And I know a lot of people don't talk about the subject in church anymore. And because of that, some people think it's fine to be in a premarital sexual relationship. But as I said last week, unless Jesus tells you otherwise, sin in the Old Testament is still sin. And so therefore, sex outside of the construct of marriage is sin. It's wrong, and I need you to know it's wrong, church, because... There are far too many young women out there these days that are pressured into thinking, you know what, if I don't sleep with my man, he's going to leave me. If I don't sleep with my boyfriend, he's going to leave me for somebody else. Can I tell you something, ladies? If that's the type of guy you're dating, let him go. Let him go. Because I need you to know that you are a daughter of the King. You need a man who respects you and a man who loves you like Jesus loves his church. You want someone who would treat you in that way, right? That's a real man. And guys, for those of you who aren't married yet, you want a lady, when you try, how shall I say this? When you try and, and make an advance, she says, hey, listen, I'm saving myself for marriage. And by the way, if you want to date me, you've got to come to church with me. Not once a year, not during Christmas or an Easter. You come with me to church every Sunday, right? And by the way, you're going to have to be the priest in our home one day. You know, when I met Pastor Renell, as many of you know, uh, I wasn't a believer back then. And there was a while when we were dating that she wasn't quite sure that I was going to be able to make the transition from my, my worldly ways. So one day she, she sat me down and she said to me, listen, my life is involved in church. 
I love God. I have a relationship with God. And if you want to date me, you're going to have to come to church. And she said, by the way, if we get married one day, you will have to become the priest in our home. I just nodded my head in agreement. But I was thinking in my mind, you know what? Does that mean I must come, go to some monastery and change my life and wear the robe and the, and the white collar? I didn't know what that meant back then, right? But you know what? Because of that type of integrity, that's what really drew me to her. And I knew immediately, church, this is the type of woman that I wanted for my wife and for the mother of my children because of the, the stand that she took. And I've never respected anyone more. So to the ladies and to the men, choose wisely because the partner you choose will either help you to your destiny or, or take you away from it. Don't give in to sexual immorality, not before you get married and not after. Here's number four and five. Verse nine and ten says, We must not tempt the Lord, that is, test his patience, question his purpose, or exploit his goodness, as some of them did, and they were killed by serpents. And do not murmur in unwarranted discontent, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Church, do you know what it means to tempt Christ? Tempting Christ means to question God's goodness and God's direction for your life. Ultimately, the devil would try to bring you to a place where you question why and where God has brought you. And ultimately, when you question what God has done for you, even though there's an evident trail of God's goodness and deliverance in your life, when you question God, you're tempting God. That's what that means, which in essence means that you are questioning the sovereignty of God. What every one of us need to understand this morning, church, is that the God we serve is a sovereign God. He controls life. He controls circumstances. And listen to this. He will never allow more to happen in your life that you have the capacity to handle. Can I get an amen from somebody right there? How do I know this? Because Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says that all things work together for the good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. Is there anyone here that loves God this morning? You see, ultimately the devil wants you to question God. As a matter of fact, in this example, not only did these Israelites question God, they questioned the leadership that God had put them under. They questioned Moses' leadership. They questioned where they were going. They began to criticize him, but the Bible was clear that God spoke to Moses. When you read through the book of Numbers, I think you go through the first 18 or 19 chapters, and the first few words of just about every chapter, it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses, and the Lord spoke to Moses, and the Lord spoke to Moses. But guess what? They still questioned him because they were going through some paths that they didn't understand. They didn't know why they were going through the journey. And church, there are some things that will happen in your life that you won't understand. And God will take you through some places that you won't know why you are there. But you will get an understanding of it later on. He will give you an understanding of what you've had to go through at some point. He'll, he'll give you a crown on your head. He'll give you beauty for your ashes. 
but never question God and His sovereignty of your life. And don't question the leadership that He has called to guide you and shepherd you through the journeys of life. And church, if I've ever seen people go into the wilderness and short-circuit their destiny, it is through this very area of temptation. Verse 10 again says, And do not murmur in unwarranted discontent as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. If you go to Numbers chapter 14, you'll see how the children of Israel started murmuring. And this is what Paul is making reference to here. They complained about Moses, right? They complained about the direction they were going in. They complained about the people who died. They complained about the water, the food, the manna, right? They even questioned who Moses was married to. They questioned just about everything. And church, I don't know about you, but if you live long enough, you will come across people who will find fault with everything and will complain about everything. And can I say to you this morning that complaining is not a spiritual gift? I find it really strange how some people will feel that it's okay to complain about something but never want to be a part of the solution. Too many people want to complain or to be critical in unwarranted discontent, as the Scripture says, but walk away without taking any accountability or being a part of the solution. Murmuring is a serious thing. And not only does it bring disunity among the body of Christ, but it will hinder you from, from stepping into your destiny. Because the people who murmured in the wilderness did not reach the promised land. They didn't reach the destiny. And church, that's what we are zeroing in on this morning. I'm talking about these temptations that they, they did not overcome. These examples that Paul gave us that kept them from the promised land to highlight to you and to me to zero in on all how all of this impacts our destiny. Like I said to you earlier, the reason why Jesus wants us to get to the heart of the matter when it comes to temptation and sin, the reason why we study passages like we did this morning, the reason why we need to dig deep is because He wants us whole and walking in victory as we find breakthrough in different areas in our lives. God wants us walking in breakthrough. Remember, wholeness is what paves the way for destiny. And the enemy of your soul, who does not want your soul to prosper, will bring any and every temptation to take you off that pathway. Because he knows that your destiny is a severe threat to the kingdom of darkness. And because of that fact, I hate to tell you this, you have a great big target on your back. But guess what? If you focus on your heart, if you stay close to Jesus, if you set your mind on things above, if you set your mind on Jesus, if you focus on your relationship with Jesus, if you allow that to grow, if you nurture that, church, I promise you, you will find an escape to the things that are tormenting you externally. You will find breakthrough 
in temptation. You will find breakthrough in the areas that are holding you, the sin and temptation that is holding you. Even if it's got a hold of you right now. How do I know this? I'm going to close by, by reading the last couple of verses of this passage. Verse 11 says, Now these things happen to them as an example and warning to us, that's you and I, they were written for our instruction to admonish and equip us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let the one who thinks he stands firm, immune to temptation, being overconfident and self-righteous, take care that he does not fall into sin and condemnation. Look, that's the wrong mindset to have because then you're focusing on the external and your own capabilities. Rather, be mindful of the sovereign God who works at the heart level. Fix your gaze on Him. Tell someone next to you, keep your eyes on Jesus. Tell them, because if you do, look at what it says in verse 13. No temptation, regardless of its source, has overtaken or enticed you that is not common to human experience. Nor is any temptation unusual or beyond human resistance, but God is faithful. To His word, He is compassionate and trustworthy. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your own ability to resist, but along with the temptation, and I like this, He says, He has in the past and is now and will always provide the way out as well. He will provide the escape so that you will be able to endure it without yielding and will overcome temptation with joy. We don't need to say much more than that, do we? What a mighty God we serve. And what God is saying, because you know, sometimes you look at sin and you think, but some people don't overcome sin. And some do, but you know, the Lord is saying that we can overcome it. What is the secret then? We need to keep our eyes on the prize. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because if we do, no matter what comes our way, church, because temptation is going to come. Like I said last time, none of us are exempt to temptation. But when temptation comes, if we've got to ask fixed there, nothing's going to take us off our pathway to our destiny. I was speaking to Pastor Renal in the week, and I was just sort of grappling with a scripture because I was thinking in life, you know, why is it that some people don't find breakthrough in sin? When God says that we can do it, it's really dependent on where we are focused. It might sound a bit simple, but that's really what it is. If we are focused on God's ways, we've got our minds set on things above. If we are in the Word of God, if we are praying, church, if we have the fear of, fear of the Lord, and you know what, if we're thinking about our destiny with the Lord in heaven one day, and never mind that, but what God has for us to do in this life, the enemy can come, he can try, but his attempts are going to fail. The Lord God says he will give you an escape. And I stand on the word of God this morning.